Now, James doesn't promise any particular relief here, does he? Let's be absolutely clear about that. He doesn't say that if you pray, all of those problems are going to go away. But it is the proper response to take whatever it is we're suffering through to the Lord in prayer. So will God remove the anxiety? Will he remove the depression? Will he remove the financial hardship? Will he remove the pressures at work? Will he take away the persecution? Maybe. But he's not obligated to. In fact, as as one commenter uh, notes that a consistent refrain in this letter um, throughout the entire book and we've seen this over and over again, is this idea of enduring through trials. Understanding that our rewards are not always in this life, are they? And so I'm going to come back to that after we talk about the prayer of healing a little bit, but it would seem that the always appropriate prayer in these hardships and trials is the prayer that we would endure. The prayer for steadfastness the prayer that we might lean heavily on the Holy Spirit and dig into grace and so persevere when the odds feel steep. So let's hold that thought for a second and let's look at the second idea. The next phrase, he says, is anyone cheerful? And again, this is a general term. It doesn't point to any specific externalities. There's nothing it assumes is going on in a person's life. It's just an emotional word. It's a, it's a person having happy emotions. That could be in spite of externalities. And, and I think we as Christians, if we're honest, if we read Scripture, if we look at what it says, we are called to find our joy in God, to find our joy in Christ, to find our joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to find our ultimate satisfaction in things that are absolutely unchanging. So yes, in a very real sense, we're called to be cheerful and happy despite our outward circumstances. But that doesn't mean, by the way, that we can't be both happy and sad. Happy in the gospel and sad at the loss of a loved one. Or, or maybe you get a, a new job and you're, you're happy to have the new opportunity, but you're sad to leave a good workplace or, or fun co-workers or even neighbors or friends that you had. We understand the feeling of having mixed emotions. And I think that as long as we live in a world of sin, in which we still live, but have the greatest of all hopes. The knowledge that our sin is forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ and and eternal life has been secured for us, all by His grace given to us through our faith in Him, in this reality, we Christians can and should live with mixed emotions, always being exposed to the beautiful grace of Jesus Christ poured out on us and also always being exposed to a world of injustice and sin. So I think that's understandable. But I think sometimes our cheer is maybe more prominent. Sometimes, to our discredit, we we forget the source of our joy. And so sort of like, uh, as we've seen lately, a a tulip or a daffodil bursting uh, forth with radiant color against this dead landscape of early spring, we find ourselves suddenly cheerful. And James says when you find yourself experiencing such cheer, your response should be to sing. Singing praise. Singing praises is another way of praying to God. That's really what it is. When we sing praises, we are singing you songs to God. Praise is about marveling at God's amazing character and recognizing the excellence of the things he has done and he does and he will do. And so, you know, singing, singing is sort of that one specific artistic type thing 
that's commanded of Christians. Do you realize that? That there's not a lot of arty, artsy type things that we're told to do in the Bible. But singing is one. It's not optional. It's absolutely commanded. And I'm not sure all the causes of it, but Christians don't sing much anymore. At least we don't sing like we used to. We, we create churches. And look, many of these churches do a fantastic job of, of prioritizing the gospel. They do fantastic works in the name of Jesus Christ. So I'm not, don't hear me throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But we do. We have a tendency to create churches in which people are drawn to be spectators at a concert rather than participants in corporate singing. And and sure, people still sing, but it's not obligatory in the same way. Uh, You can certainly get away with not singing because the sound is so loud. uh, You can't even tell if the person next to you is singing or not. And and part part of that comes from a good place. They're trying to create churches that they feel are relevant in, in a culture in which people don't go to church anymore and don't understand these habits and, and practices. And that desire to speak the gospel relevantly is praiseworthy. With new Christians coming into the church and those who didn't grow up going to church or understanding what it meant or why, it might seem awkward to, to belt out tunes in a room full of strangers. But I want to make two points. Um, First of all, let's hope that if you feel that way, if you feel like, wait, it's a little awkward just belting out songs in a room full of strangers, uh, I hope that the people aren't strangers for long. You you Christ followers here, and and I take that to be the majority of you, are family. You realize you're going to spend eternity with each other. You can't escape one another. Brothers and sisters, and that is what you are. Let me ask you this. Do you let your hair down when you're with your biological family? Your biological family. Do you let your hair down a little bit? Or do you let your hair down with your spouse? Then let me ask you this. Do you let your hair down in the family of faith? I'm willing to bet, sadly, that every one of us in this room has biological family that's closer in relation to us than the other people in this room. Yeah, we're all biologically related to Noah, right? But you've got family that's of closer blood relation than the people in this room that you know of who will not spend eternity with you. When I add it up, my biological family is really small. Some of you guys come from big families, but I dare you, count it. Count them. And see, then count your faith family. Because my faith family is enormous. I can't even keep up with everyone the way I'd like to because of the number of people I I love and care for. And that, I mean, that's even hard to do just here. And I've got brothers and sisters that I deeply care about that I just haven't talked to in years because I can't. I can't keep up with that many people. But if they needed something, I'd be there. In Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, Jesus taught his disciples, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. We've been bought and adopted into a new family, a bigger family, a family that we will spend eternity with. And so 
let down your hair. Don't, don't be shy about letting yourself be known among the people that you are going to spend the rest of your eternal life with. You better get to know them because you're going to enjoy them for a long time. And, and second, as I said before, you're commanded to sing. So it's, it's not optional. If you don't sing, you are actually being disobedient. You're, you're sinning. So creating a church environment in which it's easy not to sing is not good for your soul. It's one of the very few things we are commanded to do when we gather together. The Bible doesn't tell us we should have skits or videos when we gather. The Bible doesn't tell us we should have lights. It doesn't tell us we should have fog machines. It doesn't tell us we should have stages. It doesn't tell us we should have pews or metal chairs. It doesn't tell us we should have uh, podiums or whatever these things are. Um, they're new. We, it doesn't tell us we need to have guitars or organs or pianos or even lead singers. But the Bible does tell us that we should read the word, we should preach, we should pray, we should absorb, observe the Lord's Supper and baptism, and we should sing. Those are the things that we are commanded to do when we gather. So it's non-negotiable. So here's my challenge for you. If you're out there, and there might be a few of you, I know a couple of the people are, and they're, they're their mothers today, so they got off easy, but if you're one of those ones out there who just mouths the words or just barely vocalizes any vibrations from your throat um, because you're shy or embarrassed or you're self-conscious about your voice, let me challenge you to just belt it out. Sing. Do you, do you have anything to be cheerful about? Then Sing. Is there anything good in the gospel? Is there anything great in God? Is there anything worth celebrating? Then sing. Just do it. Now, now this contrast between suffering on the one hand and, and, and being cheerful on another creates another sort of merism. We, we mentioned that last week. It's the, this literary device where you take the opposite extremes of something and it's a stand-in for everything in between. And so if you should pray about your troubles, and if you should pray through song in your cheer, then effectively James is saying the same thing Paul does when Paul says in Philippians 4, 6, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. He's saying the same thing as Paul in Ephesians 6, 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Pray about all things in all things, at all times. That's what James is saying. If you can pray about the worst things and you should pray about the best things, then you should be praying about everything. So does that habit of prayer, does your habit of prayer reflect this teaching? I know too often mine falls short, but brothers and sisters, we need to become a people of prayer. You know, the, the elders have been discussing how to bring back a, a prayer night. We tried that last year. And we don't have any details. We've had a lot of more pressing things, but it's, it's on our agenda. And Lord willing, uh, I, I hope it will happen sometime this year. And, and if you're interested in, in helping us to craft that um, and helping us to put that get together, we'd love that support. Because while we believe that we're commanded to pray and we believe that it is good for our souls as a body, as a congregation, to come around prayer more deeply and more consistently. There's a lot of forms that can take, right? The Bible says we should pray. It doesn't give us a lot of details about how we should organize the prayer. And we want to organize that in ways that are healthy, yes, but also conducive to you being able to show up to you being able to, to get something out of it. So if you're interested in that, see me, or especially see Brian. I know he'd love to talk to you about that. So let's pray for everything. Secondly, we should pray for healing. And we'll look at uh, verses 15 and 16 primarily. Or excuse me, 14 uh, through, through 16 
but 14 and 15 primarily. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Shall pause there. So James turns his attention to the specific issue of sickness. It's actually not too surprising. In an ancient letter, it was very common that at, toward the end, you would offer some wishes of, of hopefulness uh, to the recipients and, and, and talk about wanting them to have great health. And what James does is, is brilliant, really. He, he turns this typical closing section of a, a Greco-Roman first century letter into a whole bunch of teaching on being well and, and what it means to pray. So it, it's kind of brilliant in a way. Um, and, and so moving from things, the everything that we should pray about, he wants to talk specifically about healing. And, and tied up in all of this is this idea of forgiveness of sins. And so I'm breaking this into two points. Healing and forgiveness. But they're they're twisted together pretty tightly, and so there's not going to be a clear line of demarcation. But more tricky than that is the fact that this passage has been twisted a couple different directions. And I just want to clear the air before we dig in. First, this, this text has been twisted into the central support for the idea of faith healing in some charismatic circles, not, not all. The understanding is that if you pray with faith, a healing is guaranteed. And if the healing doesn't happen, it's a lack of faith. So that's, that's one way it's been twisted. Just hold that. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Uh, a second way this passage has been twisted is it's become the basis on the complete other extreme uh, for the Roman Catholic sacrament of extreme unction or anointing the sick. The Roman Catholic Church recognizes seven sacraments that they take to be means of receiving grace unto salvation. And extreme unction, uh, which largely takes its basis from this passage, is one of them. And I'm going to address both of those teachings as we work through this passage. Uh, the first one under this point, uh, the Catholic uh, teaching under the second point. But I wanted to highlight them up front because if you're inclined toward one of those camps or... Um, if you've heard of one of those teachings before, I, I don't want you reading them into this text. So I just wanted to point out these two elephants in the room up front, and, and, and then we'll, we'll dig into those things as we go. And, and so to the best of our ability, we're breaking this down two ways, healing and, and forgiveness. So what about healing? What does James say? Well, let's start with the fact that he takes a little bit different tact here. Uh, he commands the sick person to call for the elders. So before, if you're in bad shape, you pray. If you're in great shape, you pray. If you're sick, go call the elders to pray, which is interesting. I don't think he's saying that you shouldn't pray about that also. Uh, like I said, I think he's saying you should pray about everything. But that is a, that is a distinction here. James calls on the person to get others to pray. And it seems like, I don't want to push any of this too far, but it seems like he envisions a, a person who's sick enough um, that they can't go to get prayer. So they, they have to request that it comes to them. That seems to be the picture. But what do we make of the elders coming? Why request the elders? Why them? What's going on there? Um, we've talked about this a few times over the last year or so. Uh, the elders would have been the leaders in the church, just like we have elders here. The terminology uh, was a carryover from the Jewish synagogues, and 
Sometimes they use the more Greek term overseer instead of elder. But the roles are both described with the same vocabulary. They're the ones who are responsible for the shepherding or the pastoring of the flock, the church. And as you read through the letters, the epistles, the the book of Acts, it seems clear that appointing and establishing elders was a high priority from the very early days of the church. So why call them? Well, I think two things can be said. James says a little further on that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And what we know from the qualifications of elders is that they are supposed to be exemplary Christians. And so it would stand to reason that if the elders are, in fact, exemplary Christians, uh, they might better fit the category of a righteous man who might pray powerfully. Secondly, James goes on to say that we should be praying for one another in verse 16. So the elders, in a way, are just a specific instance of what all Christians should be doing, which is praying for one another. Now, the the elders are are described as praying over the person and anointing the person with oil in the name of the Lord. And it's hard to be sure, but it seems to be a picture of a, a bedridden person. So the elders are literally over them. Maybe it's a laying on of hands on that person. But I know you're not really interested in where the elders are positioned over the person. You want to know about the oil, right? You, you're asking, yeah, but what about the oil? Like, what is the point of the oil? Was it, was it a special kind of oil? Did the oil have magic properties? Did it, what, what is going on with the oil? And there is a lot of debate on this point. And I'll spare you most of it. But what we do know is that this is just an ordinary term for applying and an ordinary term for oil. There's there's nothing special here. It's not magic oil. It's not holy oil. It doesn't say where the oil comes from. So, I mean, it's, it's the Near East. So, I mean, it's probably olive oil, but it doesn't say that. So what's the purpose? There's, there's nothing in the vocabulary here that oh, like the Greek word here means the holy oil that they put over Moses. It doesn't say that. This is just a normal application of oil. It's about as generic as James could have made it. I think that the best understanding of what's going on is that the oil is symbolic. And the reason I say that is because James doesn't say that the oil heals the person. Now, in fact, he specifically says the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, not the oil. It doesn't say anything about the oil, the prayer of faith alone. Prayer is what, it's, what is effective. It's possible the oil is here for medicinal purposes. Some people think that what James is saying is that you should give them medicine. Oil was commonly used for medicine back then. And so oil is like medicine, and then prayer is like the spiritual, natural and spiritual. But it doesn't, that seems to be a stretch to me. Maybe a comforting purpose. Some have suggested, I mean, you could put oil on your face to, to feel better, to, to look good before you went out in public. Um, you know, sometimes when you feel sick, you're just gross and dirty and nasty, so maybe it, just, maybe it was just a way of comforting the person. But I think more than likely, it's a symbolic way. Um, oil is used in the Bible for setting things apart. And I think it was a symbolic way of saying, we are setting this person apart for special attention before God in prayer. And if that seems silly to you, it's not. It really isn't. The Bible and our lives in general are full of symbolic acts that help us to better appreciate and understand a given moment. Take the Pledge of Allegiance. Is the the Pledge of Allegiance any more true if you put your hand over your heart than if you don't? 
So, so why, why do you do it? But there's a symbolic nature of it. That your heart is your, your lifeblood, and so, you, you know, there's a, a seriousness or solemnity to putting your hand over your heart. But, but the words are either, you either mean them or you don't mean them, right? The, the place in your hand over the heart doesn't make them more or less true. So we, but we understand that, right? And, and we have other pictures like baptism and, and the Lord's Supper that are, that are symbolic, and yet they point us in very sensory ways that are important and meaningful. So I wouldn't take that as silly, but I would take that as a helpful pointer toward a spiritual reality. Now, the elders should do this, James says, and he says that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise them up. The context is clearly a physical healing, not spiritual salvation. Some people um, want to try and turn this into a spiritual salvation because the idea of healing a person seems uncomfortable, seems weird, seems awkward, and, and they don't want to... Some people even believe that God just doesn't heal like that anymore. All right? and, and so trying to get away from the fact that the Bible seems to clearly say here that the guy will be healed, they want to turn it into... Well, maybe it's just talking about his, his salvation. His soul will be saved. But I think that's, that's special pleading. It's talking about a physical healing. And, and so what do we do with the promise? Because what probably grabs your attention, certainly what grabs my attention, is the prayer of faith will save. And the Lord will raise him up. So what do we do with that? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean, as some charismatics take it to mean, that healing is guaranteed to those who have enough faith. There are charlatans, very bad men, very bad women, monstrous false teachers who peddle this myth for a profit. They're liars, they are deceivers, they are wolves. Stay away from them. Have you noticed how they operate? Because take a look. Because here, here's, they, they, this is insidious. Here's how they twist it even further. If a person is not healed at one of their rallies, these false teachers place the burden on the sick person. Not the preacher. James says that the elders are praying and says that their prayer of faith is the mediating activity. Not the faith of the sick person, but the faith of the person who's praying. But these false teachers compound their lie by putting on the backs of these sick people the guilt of not being faithful enough to be healed. That is a really wicked thing. And some of them do it explicitly. Some just sort of imply it. But that is dangerous. So that's not what it means. It does not mean that if you have enough faith, you will be healed. We need to focus on two things in this text if we want to understand what James is saying. And there are two things that we probably gloss over because they're just sort of jargony. But they are roughly equivalent. First, James says that they are praying over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And second, James is saying that they are praying in faith. Now, the first expression goes back to Jesus. You, you probably remember the, teacher, the teaching where Jesus says, until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Asking you will receive and your joy will be complete. Anything you ask for in my name, Jesus says, I will give to you. It's a promise. But what that doesn't mean is that if you tack, in Jesus' name, amen, on the end of your prayer, it's magic, you get it. It's yours, right? It's not like 
this is accessible to the Christian, but not accessible. You know, it's accessible to the Christian who knows the right magic formula. It's not like St. Abracadabra, and then God just does what you want. That's not what Jesus meant. To, a person's name is their character, and more so in the first century. It was their reputation. It was everything they stood for. It was everything that they were all about. And so to pray in Jesus' name would be to pray in accordance with all who he is, all that he stands for, all his greatest dreams and desires. And we talked about this a little bit back in chapter 1, but if your heart is aligned with Jesus' heart, If you want the things that Jesus wants, guess what? The sovereign God of the universe always gets what he wants. And so if you want the things that the sovereign God of the universe wants, you will get what you want. Because your priorities have been rearranged to be in line with the priorities of the God of the universe. And so, and I'm guilty of it too sometimes, but contrary to uh, uh, typical Christian practice, Tagging in Jesus' name on the end of our prayers doesn't necessarily do anything. Not necessarily. It doesn't do anything. You can pray in Jesus' name without saying in Jesus' name. And saying in Jesus' name doesn't make it in Jesus' name. Give me a Lamborghini in Jesus' name. No, probably not. Probably not. Unfortunately, but probably not. The second one is the, the idea of praying in faith. Faith is the conviction of things that are not now evident. But faith isn't blind. Faith is based on the promises of God. That's why, and again, we talked about this at the beginning of the sermon series, James says in in chapter 1 to pray without doubting, without waffling, without wavering. To pray without any doubt means we must be praying for something that we have tremendous confidence in. So it's not wishful thinking. That's not a prayer of faith. To pray in faith is to trust the promises of God. To trust in what God has revealed to us. And to pray accordingly, believing those things are true. That, by the way, is why the Lord's Prayer is such a fantastic prayer. Why it's okay and good for us as Christians to pray it. Or variations on it. Because if you go through the Lord's Prayer... Every petition in the Lord's Prayer, every request in the Lord's Prayer is for something that God has promised. Think about it. Uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That means may your name be set apart as holy and revered. Have you read Revelation? It will be. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Oh, the kingdom is arriving. It's advancing. And it will come fully at the return of Jesus Christ. And he will will put away evil. And he will down sin for good. And death will be put away. And heaven and earth will become one. And his will will be done on earth exactly the way it's done in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. God, give us what we need to survive and live for you. That's what we're asking for. We're asking for the the bare necessities. We like to think of our necessities of, of what I need to sustain my current lifestyle. Or if we're a little better, we ask for the things that we need to sustain us for living. But God is more concerned about sustaining us in holiness And he will provide us every provision that we need to be brought into the kingdom as his sons and daughters. And we could go on and on. These are promises. These are things that God has promised he will do. And we pray for those things. And we can pray for those things with certainty. And so James gives us an example of this guy named Elijah. And if you don't know the story, if you don't know the story, it's in in 1 Kings chapter 
17 and 18, and, and Elijah prophesies that there will not be rain on the earth until he says so again. It's over three years. James rounds it to, to three and a half years. It's implied that he prays at the, at the beginning of that period. It's, it's explicitly stated that he prays at the end of that period. And what's interesting, especially about the narrative at the end, is that God tells Elijah to go talk to the king, Ahab. Uh, this, this lack of rain was a, a judgment on Israel for their sin. And God says, I'm going to bring the rain. So go, go talk to Ahab. And... The rain doesn't come, but Elijah knows God's promise. Elijah goes and prays for the rain that God has promised, and the rains come, and the ground is watered. The skies open up. So, miraculous, yes, that on Elijah's prayer, the skies open up, but he was praying what he knew God had promised. He wasn't praying out of wishful thinking. He was prayed, praying in accordance with the revealed will of God. And James says that this Elijah, who brought the reins with a prayer based on the revealed will of God, was not anybody special. He was... He was an ordinary man with an ordinary nature, but he believed the word of God. So what does that mean about healing? Well, it means that if the healing accords with Jesus' name, if Jesus wills healing, it will be done. If God has revealed to you that he wants to heal a person, then you ought to and can pray in faith for that healing with the full expectation that it will be done. Does that mean that we shouldn't pray at other times for healing? Does that mean we shouldn't pray for healing when God has not revealed His will to us? No, not at all. If we don't have the promises of God to rely on, we have nothing to root our faith in, then it's not a prayer of faith in those circumstances, or at least it's not a, a prayer of faith and healing in those circumstances. But it is a prayer of faith in God's ability to heal. It's a prayer of faith in God's power to heal and His goodness for His children. But it's also a prayer of faith in God's sovereign purposes that might not align with our immediate and temporal desires. And so we can pray in faith that God will be absolutely good and give exactly what is needed when we don't know what he wills. Doesn't experience in Scripture teach you this anyway? Did Paul or James heal everyone in distress? No. In fact, one story comes to mind, a little blip that Paul writes to Timothy in his letter to Timothy, one of his letters to Timothy. He mentions that he had to leave his ministry partner, traveling companion Trophimus, behind in Miletus because Trophimus was ill. Well, that's odd. Did Paul not have enough faith? Paul the guy who raised Eutychus from the dead and who healed many others. Did he not have enough faith to heal Trophimus and keep Trophimus going on the ministry with him? That's ridiculous. Paul had faith to heal when the occasion warranted such faith. But at other times, his faith was simply the reliance on a good God who knows that our trials are often for our good. It's also worth noting that while there were, and I believe are, people who are given gifts of healing, that's a biblical category. 
It's interesting that James does not tell the sick person to call for them. He doesn't tell them to call for them, but he tells them to call for the elders. Now, we don't have time to dig into it. Uh, But let it suffice to say that it's dangerous to take one piece of Scripture as paradigmatic over all the other Scriptures and try and just fit them into your scheme. We have to take the whole of Scripture as true and, and allow it to speak to those other areas. Maybe at some point we'll, we'll do a future series on the gifts of the Spirit and we can, we can dig in that more. But for now, we need to draw a line. James wants us to pray for each other's healings because it is a real and alive possibility. We need to pray in the name of Christ. Third, we are to pray for forgiveness. Now, this is all intertwined with the discussion of healing. And so for the sake of trying to flesh it out, I'm separating as best I can. But James says that a prayer of faith will save him and that the Lord will raise him up and that if he has committed sin, he'll be forgiven. And so that seems confusing. What's he talking about? We have to understand. We have to accept something that we don't like to think about. In the ancient world, it was really common to assume that if somebody was sick or ill or dead, that they did something to deserve it. So you can think about Job and his friends, and his friends are like, come on, Job, you sinned. Must, and it must have been a big sin, because your life sucks right now. right? So you must really, really have screwed up. Um, or there was a conversation Jesus and his disciples had. Uh, a man who had been born blind and and they said, did, did he sin or did his parents sin that this happened to him? And Jesus is like, what are you guys talking about? No, he didn't sin. And, and then Jesus goes on to describe some of the tragedies that had happened in, in sort of recent world events. And he said, were those sinners? No, not any worse sinners than anybody else, at least. And that's not why it happened. And so there's not a one-to-one correlation. You can't just say, oh, something bad's happening to this person. It must be because of some specific sin. Yes, the world has fallen. Uh, a sin has cursed the universe. And so in some way, all the bad things and tragedies are a result of sin uh, indirectly. But the Bible does speak to the fact that sin is sometimes the cause of sickness and death. Not always. I don't even know that it's a majority of the time. I tend to think it's a minority, a small minority of the time. But it does open that category, and you can't ignore it. You can't trust what the Bible says and and put that aside. I think of uh, Ananias and Sapphira, who tried to look good in front of the early Christian community and look like the most generous donors around. And really, they were hiding the profits that they had made. So they wanted to look good and be known for being very generous. And God put them to death. Or when Paul talks to the Corinthians, who were debasingly partaking in the Lord's Supper, And and Paul says that's why a number of you are sick or have even died. James says if he has committed a sin. So it's not for sure. James didn't say he definitely committed a sin. He said if he's committed a sin, if his sickness is due to some sin he's done. And James said if the Lord is willing to heal him, he's going to also be willing to forgive the sin that caused the illness. And and note this, James connects this confessing sin with the forgiving of sins. You you notice the the word therefore, giving the, the reason in verse 16? If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John that if we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us our sins. So we are to make a practice of confessing. And that means at least two things, maybe three things, let's put it that way. Uh, first, acknowledging that you've done the act, agreeing with God that it's wrong and an offense to him, 
And then third, might differ whether you're a Christian or not. Third, if you're not a Christian, it's part of conversion, is asking for God's forgiveness on the basis of what Jesus already accomplished on the cross. But if you are a Christian, a part of continuing in the faith is thanking God for the forgiveness that has already been secured on your behalf at the cross. So how do we practice confessing sin with one another? Because that's what the text says. And I know you're going to get tired of me saying it. But let me suggest that intentional discipleship and accountability relationships are a huge opportunity and a great place for confessing sin with one another. Look, there are times when confessing sin before the whole church is appropriate or confessing before a small group Bible study might be appropriate. But more often than not, the best place to confess sin is going to be in tiny groups and one-on-one encounters, encounters in which we are intentionally building into other people or being built into by people for the sake of the gospel and to the glory of God. So I'll put it out there again and again and again. Who are you discipling? And who is discipling you? We're going to be talking about this as growth groups, by the way. Uh, Brian and I are working on a short might be a one-week curriculum, three weeks maximum for the growth groups to dig into this issue with a little bit more intensity. So, so if you're not in a growth group, check out a growth group. Uh, there are informational flyers on the front table, on the chalkboard, on the back about the times, and the people involved in the entrance table. We're going we're gonna to study this with a little bit more intensity about what does it mean to disciple someone, Uh, What does it look like to disciple someone? How do you start discipling someone? And and making this really a priority in in our church body. And and how do we, we connect that then to what James says here? Well, if there are sicknesses that result from sin, then confessing sin to one another is sort of like a great inoculation program, isn't it? So it's not going to to cure all of our diseases and, and make us all perfectly healthy. But there is a connection that we can't ignore just because we're enlightened 21st century naturalistic thinkers. No, there is a supernatural connection from time to time between a direct line between our sin and our sickness. Not always, but there is. And so confessing sin to one another is a great inoculation program. It's like everybody getting the flu vaccine. That's all oh, that's controversial now. But let's suppose it's not controversial and that everyone understands that you should get your vaccine then it would be a good thing, and the analogy would work. Get this vaccine. We confess our sins to one another, okay? Now, we've addressed all the pieces of this verse. um, Now that we've discussed the healing and we've discussed the, the forgiveness, we can turn our attention briefly to the other twisting of this passage I mentioned. Um, The Roman Catholics believe that this is a sacrament. Then there's six others, and they're necessary grace for salvation. Um, What I mean by that is that the Catholic Church teaches that anyone who denies that extreme unction is a sacrament is anathema, which historically meant condemned, but seems to have been reinterpreted by them to mean that the person is cut off from the sacraments necessary for salvation until they repent. So it's still effectively pretty bad. And, and further, they teach to anyone who says the sacraments are unnecessary for salvation, but rather that salvation is through faith alone. Shoot, that's us. Um, <laughs> is anathema. And so that's why we rightly say that the official teaching of Roman Catholicism is a justification by works 
and not a justification of faith alone. Because the practice of the sacraments at a minimum is a work necessary for salvation under that schema. But to our specific point, the so-called sacrament of extreme unction, or sometimes it's considered part of what's called last rites, or anointing of the sick, is given when a person has a sickness or disease that could lead to death. It's not always like in the movies, like on their deathbed. Uh, But if they have a sickness that could lead to death, and, and the Catholics believe, among other things, that the anointing with oil prepares a person for the afterlife, cleanses away sin, and can provide healing, if healing is necessary for the person's salvation. Um, a few rebuttals. Uh, first, James does not connect the healing with the anointing of oil, but like we saw, to prayer. Second, James does not connect the anointing with spiritual salvation. And he says nowhere does he suggest that the person must be physically healed so that they can be spiritually saved. Third, James does not connect the anointing with forgiveness of sins, as if a man could forgive offenses committed against God, let alone by oil. Rather, the forgiveness of sins is an act of God and is part of God rescuing the person from their sickness, which is apparently sin-induced. A good test uh, sometimes for studying Scripture, you, you, it's not an absolute test, but when you're, when you're trying to think about a practice or a habit of your Christian life or something else you come across, is to whether, wonder whether an informed or otherwise Bible-knowledgeable Christian who happened to read a passage for the first time would assume something like the practice. It's not a perfect test, but it's a good way to start thinking about it. In this case, if I read, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Would I come to the understanding of extreme unction? No. It is, in the words of Jesus, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. So rather than this, we will take the more difficult path that James lays out, which is we will confess our sins to one another. We'll sharpen one another. We will grow in holiness together. And you know what? We will help to ensure the health a little bit in the process. And again, I want to reiterate this. If someone falls ill, it does not mean for sure it is because of sin. That is not the first place I would go with it. But if some sin does cause sickness, then fighting sin together will surely help prevent some illness and death. So, let's be a people of prayer. Let's be a people who pray at all times, in all times, for all things. Let's let's be people who pray after God's own heart, and let's be bold about it, resting deeply in a true and abiding faith in the character and promises of God that answer that the answer to all our prayers so offered would be a resounding yes. And let us confess our sins before God and our brothers and sisters. And let us be a people who seek forgiveness, who pray for each other's repentance and for forgiveness. Short, let's be a praying people. And with that, let's pray. Father, Thank you for your goodness to us. Forgive us that we do not come to you in prayer as we ought. Forgive us that we conduct our lives too often not recognizing the source of our lives the hand that moves our lives 
or the one to whom our lives inevitably ought to point. We don't adore you as we should. We do not praise you as we should. We do not confess to you as we should. We do not thank you for our blessings as we should. We do not ask rightly, but we ask selfishly for the things that we desire rather than the promises on your heart. May we not just be a people of prayer, but a people who pray after your own heart. And we know you want that for us, so I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Never gonna let me die. 